Thank you, Liz. My name is Keith. I'm an alcoholic. By the grace of God, a fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and a succession of three very evil, mean sponsors. <laughs> I've not had to take a drink since May the 13th, 1973, and for that I am uh, grateful. I really want to thank Liz for uh, for inviting me. It's it's always a, a great privilege, and the rest of the committee. It's a great privilege. I, I want to thank Sandra and Vicky for picking me up at the airport. Liz uh, sent me a note and said, one of them is very good and one of them is very bad. You'll have to tell me which one. And um, and I told her, I'm a married man. Um, uh, so I couldn't tell her. Um, I... Uh, it's such a privilege to be a part of uh, part of this. I was here five years ago, and uh, as a matter of fact, it was sort of interesting. I was at a conference uh, in uh, Cleveland uh, a few years ago with Johnny H., and, and he found a wife there. And five years ago, uh, <laughs> five years ago, I uh, flew down from Charlotte with uh, with Tom B. and he found a wife, and uh, and there are guys who want to travel with me. Um, I'm sort of like a spiritual pimp, I guess. I don't know what to do with that. I was... Uh, I, I love coming to Cincinnati. I love the enthusiasm and, and things here. And I, I've been here numerous times. I, I, I grew up up the river in a place called Martin's Ferry. If you, if you hadn't been there, I wouldn't bother. But, uh, but, but I'm the, uh, the, uh, eldest son and the second child in a family of 11 children. And, uh, I'm Irish. I won't tell you what church I went to. Uh, been getting a lot of play this weekend. I can tell you that. And, uh, <laughs> And I'm one of those guys that, uh, that blamed that church for just about everything. I, I always thought that, you know, the, the nuns got blamed for more stuff than the Nazis. Um, <laughs> you know, Ernie the Attorney, I don't know if any of you know him, but he's a wonderful long-term member of Alcoholics Anonymous from the uh, Washington, D.C. area. And er Ernie sent me a, a cartoon, and uh, it showed there were two nuns, and the one nun was reading a letter, and she said to the other nun, she said, I just got a letter from one of my former students who's forgiven me for ruining her life. And, uh, and, and that's the way it seems to me. I, I'm one of those, uh, members the book talks about this return to the church of his childhood. I, uh, I found out they were right and I was wrong. It's like everything else. And, uh, and so I came back and I'm extremely grateful for that. Uh, and, and I want to thank John and Suzanne who took me to Mass yesterday and, they took me to Mass five years ago, so the three of us are still around, and I'm glad for that. Um, it's always a pleasure to be here. Um, my uh, my wife sends her regards. Uh, my lovely wife, Julia, uh, prays for me the hour I talk. So this very moment, she's, uh, she's, we have a little room in our house we've given to God. We figured God gave us a house, we'll give him a little room. And, um, and she's in there this very moment, and she's praying for me, and I'm profoundly grateful. For that, uh, maybe she's praying for you. Um, <laughs> she's a good Al-Anon, so she doesn't share everything. And uh, and I also want to thank the other speakers. It's just been an incredible experience for me this weekend. Uh, many I've known a long time and heard, and 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 
and Sterling, who I hadn't heard before, and I know we're going to be great friends uh, with his spirit and his sense of humor and his love for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and you know, certain people have to live in the snow, so the rest of us don't have to. And I'm grateful to Sterling for living in Nebraska. Um, he's worried about getting through Chicago because there's a snowstorm up there. And I'm, I'm worrying about whether I ought to wear a golf shirt or a sweatshirt, depending on what the temperature is going to be like. I, um, like I say, I was the, uh, uh, I grew up in a family of 11 children, and, and, uh, and like everything else, I was wrong. I would have told you that I grew up in great poverty, and, and that would have been far from the truth. Uh, it's true we had no excess material goods, but, uh, but it was far from poverty, because I, I grew up in a home, uh, with a mother who every day I let her till the day she died would kiss me and hug me and tell me she loved me. And uh, and I grew up with a father who every day I would let him would spend time with me. And um, when I got a little older and too cool, I, I tried to avoid that. But the reality was, was he was always there for me. My father uh, was 88 years of age Thursday. And, uh, and uh, if my wife and I were to go up, which we will soon, and, and visit with him, um, uh, we'll be in bed, and, and we know just to lay there for a couple of minutes, because Dad will shuffle down the hall and knock on the door, and, and I'll say yes, and he'll stick his head in and say, uh, uh, you have enough blankets? I don't care if it's August. He says, do you have enough blankets? And then we'll say, yes, Dad, and he'll say, uh, now you say your prayers. I'll say, yes, Dad, and, uh, you know, 28 years ago, if I was sitting in a bar and we started talking about how bad the world was, I would have told you I had a father who never told me he loved me. And, uh, you know, and I was so self-centered and self-absorbed that, that I would have believed that. You know, my father, he didn't learn how to say the words, but, uh, but, uh, he, uh, he learned how to show it. Uh, he was a man of action and I was a man of words. And, uh, that's the difference in our characters. Uh, he was a man of action. He acted love, and 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 I ran around demanding it. And and I knew there was something wrong with me, and I knew it wasn't my fault. I knew that either Dad didn't tell me he loved me, or Mom had a square nipple. There was something wrong. And um, and uh, you know, and like I, I I've been in AA long enough to see a lot of stuff flow through, and and. Uh, and, and one of the things about the child within has always mystified me. Now, I don't criticize anybody or anything uh, because it's really none of my business. But uh, but things have changed. I, I was up in I was out in San Francisco about ten years ago, and I, I was given a lead. And, uh, and and I it was a fun one of those fun things where they have a lot of cakes and they're giving out cakes and everybody's all high and everything. And, and I was all charged up and uh, and so I got up to speak and I shot my big mouth. There were about 2,000 people in this room. And I said, you know, things have changed. So when I came in here, uh, they used to tell me that, uh, I said, now I, I hear a lot about healing a child within. I said, when I came in, they told me I had to discipline a little bastard within. And um, and 300 people got up and stormed out. And uh, and I really felt bad. Well, you know, the other 1,700 applauded. You know how they are. And... Uh, and I really felt bad because that was I was way out of line. I had no right to do that. So I got back there about six years later and I had an opportunity to make amends. And, and, and I told him what had happened. And I said, I felt really bad. I said, because about 300 of you were offended. And, and I got up and you got up and walked out. And I said, I feel terrible about it. And I said, about half of you forgot your teddy bears. And um, 
bunch of them got up and stormed out again. And um, so my sponsor just told me to stay out of San Francisco. That. Uh, You know, um, uh, I, I was a kid who lived in fear, and uh, and I, I knew fear from the very early uh, days. And it, it was so much a natural part of my makeup that I didn't know what it was. I, I thought it was just part of me. And uh, it wasn't until it left that I knew that it was something that was external to me and something that I harbored. And and it left the day I took my first drink. And uh, and I never forget that day. I was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was uh, 17 years old. I, I just joined the United States Marine Corps. I, I always say that I, I took an inventory. I looked in the mirror, and I was 5 feet 1 inches tall, and I weighed 113 pounds, and I was a born killer. So uh, <laughs> so I joined the Marine Corps, and, uh, and that night I drank for the first time in a bar in Pittsburgh. And uh, that night, a miracle happened for me. And if you're alcoholic, you know what the miracle is. And, I was different. I was six feet four inches tall. You know, women loved me. I knew all about God. Uh, you know, I knew all about growing up. Uh, I knew everything there was to know. And uh, something where between the second and third drink, this transformation happened. And uh, it wouldn't happen to a, a non-alcoholic. And that's why non-alcoholics will never understand us. They'll want to. They really will. But they'll never understand us because they can't experience that miracle. I remember years later, I, 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 my, my poor wife said to me with, with tears in her eyes and a mascara running down her cheeks, and she said, why do you drink? She said, my, you make my life so miserable. Why do you drink? And I remember in all candor, and I said to her, why don't you? I, I just couldn't understand why anybody as unhappy as her wouldn't drink. I, I mean, it just... It didn't make sense to me, and it really didn't. And it wasn't until I got the Alcoholics Anonymous and I understood something about alcoholism that it wouldn't, couldn't work for her. I mean, one time she tried to drink like me. She said, I'm going to show you just how disgusting you are. She said, she said I'm going to drink the way you drink. And I said, well, I really wouldn't do that if I were you. I said, I said, I drink like that. My spouse ends up hating me. And um, so... We go off to this party and, uh, and she did, I mean, she's throwing them down and, uh, and you know, about 8.30 that evening, she passed out and, um, we got there at 7. And, uh, <laughs> so I put her in a car and she's hanging out the window. She's throwing up all the way home, you know, and, and so I carried her in the house and, uh, and I put her in bed and she said, oh, she said, help me, help me, the room's spinning, the room's spinning. And I said, well, put one foot on the floor. I mean, it's damned amateurs. And, and, and so so I put her foot on the floor. She said, oh, that's better. And then she had to get up and get sick again. It was just awful. You know, the next morning I got up to go running. And um, and she was laying there. It was just a pile of blankets going, oh, it sounded like George. And, um, and, uh, and she said, if you love me, you'd kill me. I got... And I went over to her. I mean, I really cared about her. I mean, I was really a loving guy. And uh, and I said to her, I said, you know, honey, it's really none of my business. I said, but maybe you shouldn't drink. And uh, <laughs> she just went crazy. I couldn't understand it. And uh, and that's the way it was in, in that marriage. It was just awful. What I did to that poor woman, I just, I, I really, really regret. And I worked very hard over a number of years to try to make amends for that, you know. And, and I did incalculable damage. I, I really was like the tornado that went through the life of that that poor woman and and the stuff that we used to do the craziness 
You know, my life reminded me an awful lot about the story about the four women who are golfing. And a woman gets on the first tee and she, she hits this wicked hook over in the 18th fairway and she hollered, four, but it was too late. There was a man over there just rolling around on the ground. He had his hands between his legs, just in agony. And she went running over. She said, sir, I'm so sorry. Well, he hurt so bad he couldn't even respond. He's just rolling around his hands between his legs. And she said, uh, she said, sir, I'm a physical therapist. I believe I can help you. And uh, so she unbuckled his pants and unzipped them, and she began to massage him. And she said, there, sir, doesn't that feel better? He said, it certainly does. He said, but my thumb still hurts like hell. And... <laughs> And that's the way my life was. Uh, um, you know, I always had these great solutions. They just never fit the problem. And uh, and I remember one time we're going to, uh, I, I quit drinking and uh, we we're going to start over. I don't know if anybody here ever started over, but the uh, way you start over is you, t you take your, your, your children to grandma's. And so we took the children, brought them up to Ohio to grandma's and we went back and we started over and and, and I knew what she liked. What she liked was uh, dinners on the patio and uh, theater and, you know, all that nice stuff. And uh, and so I began to do all those things. And she also liked me to not drink. Now, she knew what I liked. And I liked frilly little negligees and things like that. Not for me, for her. And uh, <laughs> so she got some of those. And we began to start over. And, you know, the first few days were just great, you know. And then, uh, then I started thinking, you know... Um, the guys are really pulling for me down at the bar, and uh, they're probably wondering how it's going. And um, so I stopped down just to let them know how it was going. And, and uh, you know, one thing led to another, and sure enough, it was midnight, and I'm coming home, and I'm about half in a bag. And uh, and she used to wear this thing. If, if I was late coming home, she'd wear this thing. It was, wasn't frilly. And... and um, <laughs> It, it like started up here and it, it went down to the floor and, and it came out to the her wrists and looked like a buffalo robe and uh, and basically what it meant was not tonight and uh, and, and so I was sort of hurt and because uh, I'm very sensitive and uh, and I'm not much with rejection and uh, and I did what any normal husband would do who was refused I tore up the apartment I just threw everything all around it. And uh, she was taking some pills. Uh, She's seeing a doctor, which explained why I went to why I drank so much. And um, and and I knew that she and her therapist were having an affair. They always do. And um, and she grabbed her matching buffalo robe house coat and her purse and took off out out. And it's two o'clock in the morning. And I I knew what they were. She was gonna they were gonna try to get rid of me. So they um, they called uh, they called the police. And then I'd be out of the way. Then they could have an affair. And, uh, I mean, I knew that. And, uh, so I ran around, I cleaned the place up, I straightened up, looked better than when I got home. And, uh, and I ran in and I, I put these pajamas on her mother had given me. I always wore them when the police came. And, um, <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, I messed my hair up and, and the doorbell rang and, and, and I went out and I looked out and through the peephole and there's my poor wife in her buffalo robe all wrapped up and, uh, there were two policemen, a, a young guy about 21 and an old guy about 30. And uh, and I gathered myself together. You know how alcoholics do it. And I pulled the door open and I said, thank God you found her. And, uh, 
And the older policeman said, sir, well, may we come in? And I said, of course. I said, I've just been beside myself with work. And, and, and I said to her, you know, she had that, oh, no, look. And, um, and, I, and I asked her to come in, and I asked him to come in, and, and, and I said to her, you can't be too careful when you're dealing with the police. And so I said to her, honey, did you call the doctor? And she said, yes. I said, well, at least if you had to run out of here in the middle of the night, at least you called the doctor. And she began to cry, and she ran in the bedroom. You know? And the policeman looked around. The place looked really neat and everything. And he hit me in the arm. He said, you hang in there, son. I said, yes, sir. And, um, <laughs> and, and you know what was sad about that was uh, we laugh now. She and I both laugh now. But, uh, but what was sad about it was that... Uh, you know, I went in, and she was sitting on the side of the bed. I never want to forget this. And those great big tears were dripping off her cheek. And uh, she said to me, can you ever forgive me for embarrassing you like that? And um, and I said, you know, you can't help it, honey. You're just having a bad time. And she said, promise me you'll never give up on me. And, you know, I got a drink, and I got her a glass of wine. She got another one of those pills that made her eyes do funny things. And... Uh, and, you know, she got out of that buffalo robe and put on a negligee, and we went to bed. And I, we would have told you we were the luckiest couple in the neighborhood there. We were more in love than anybody else. And we were so, so seriously ill. It was unbelievable. You know, we were caught in the grips of this repetitive behavior that we call alcoholism that uh, nobody wants to do. I never, ever wanted to be what I became. You know, I never, I never wanted to live my life. I never envisioned myself driving down... Southwest Freeway from uh, uh, Tacoma Park, Maryland, or I mean uh, Oxon Hill, Maryland, to Georgetown University, or to uh, yeah, Georgetown University Hospital, every morning pounding on a steering wheel, sometimes with and without solemn oaths and tears, begging God to let me do it differently today, and every day drink. I was one of those poor idiots who quit every morning and drank every afternoon. I said to a friend of mine one time who's now passed away, my friend Dick Corcoran, and uh, I said, you know, Dick, I said, I never had a slip. And he said, well, he said, Keith, he said, I know you haven't had a drink since you came to Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, but I've heard your story. He said, you slipped every day for five years. And that's the truth. I did. Every morning I swore I wouldn't drink, and every every evening I drank. I didn't know how impossible it was for me to drink until one day when my second daughter, Kimberly, was born, and she was... Uh, seriously ill. She had a very, very serious case of hyaluronic membrane disease, and she was, um, oh, I weighed about a pound and three quarters or something like that, and and it gave her no chance to live, and uh, and I was drunk, of course, when she was born, and I was running around a hospital in which I worked demanding that they take care of her, and I directed the genetics laboratories, and, and, and we had an office across from the neonatal nursery, and um, and I would sit over there at night with the lights out and the door slightly ajar watching this little girl. They put her on a, something called a negative respirator, which was an experimental machine at that time. It was the first one on the East Coast. And, and, and I would sit in there and I'd watch this little thing struggle for every breath of air. And, uh, and I knew what my father would do in a situation like that. I was, I was watching my wife walk up and down the hallway with a thousand yard stair, essentially in a state of shock. And, and I knew what my father would have done. I watched him for years. and He'd have gone out. and This quiet, spiritual man would have put his arms around his wife and said, uh, we'll do this together. And we'll be all right. And we'll trust in God. And God, we're all of God's children. That's the kind of things he would say to her. And uh, 
And I couldn't go to her. There was nothing there. I knew that there was nobody inside of me. And uh, and then the the one night at 72 hours is particularly critical, and they didn't think she'd make it. And uh, and I sat in that office and watched my wife go in and baptize our little baby because they didn't think she'd live through the night. And uh, and I had long since abandoned the church of my childhood. And uh, and I went down to the chapel they had in that hospital, and I got on my knees and in front of the tabernacle, which was a very special place for me when I was a kid growing up. And I begged God to let my little girl live. And I said, if you'll let her live, I'll do anything. If you let her live, I'll stop drinking. And I was drunk in 12 hours. And I drank when I thought drinking would kill my little girl, and I never want to forget that. Because a short time after that, just two short, two and a half short years after that, I was uh, taken to a place called Alcoholics Anonymous on a bus from a little treatment center. And there was an old man who stood outside the door, and uh obnoxious old guy, uh, looking in the eye, you know the kind. And um, I was a shoe man. I looked at shoes, but uh, he was an eye guy. And uh, and he shook my hand firmly and said, uh, said, oh, you're new, aren't you? And my first thought was, my God, he's psychic. How do they know these things? And, and, uh, and then the second thing he said to me, he said, you know, son, if you keep coming here, you never have to drink again. And I wanted to scream at him, you don't know me, I'm a guy who drinks when he thinks drink, drinking will kill his little girl. But you know, he did know me. And he knew that, uh, he knew what was on the other side of that door. He knew what was in that handshake. And uh, he knew what was in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was a power that was so great that when unleashed on the world in 1935, miracles became commonplace. And he knew that. He knew that. And uh, and he kept his promise from that day to this one. I've never had to have a, a drink. And if you're kind of new to Alcoholics Anonymous, that's the kind of power that's here. And I want to tell you, it had little or nothing to do with me. The thing about power has very little to do with the person who receives it. It's like getting hit by a train. I mean, you don't put a lot of effort into that, you know. The, the, the train does all the work, and um, and that's the way it is, but you got to stand on the tracks, and uh, and that's the way it is in Alcoholics Anonymous. If you stand in the way of this thing, you'll get hit by it, and you'll be swept along, and uh, and then one day you become part of it, and, and that's the great day, and, and I remember the day I became part of Alcoholics Anonymous. I never want to forget it, uh, um, I've talked to a lot of people this weekend about the beginning. I bumped into a man named John here who goes to the Foxhall Group here, who went to the Foxhall Group in Washington, and that's where I met him uh, 27 years ago. And uh, there were a bunch of us who got started in '73, and uh, and uh, and there was there was this magnificence that was happening, this power that was going on, and. Uh, and, and he looked around, and, and I didn't see how any of us could make it. I mean, I, I looked at the state of our lives, and, and I didn't, you know, if, if you were to look at the externals, none of us could make it. And uh, and yet this year alone, I bet I've met 10 people who got sober in 1973 in Washington, D.C., and we were all young and hung together and uh, cried together and did all those things. But something happened to each and every one of us, and that's a great precursor to a miracle that Whenever a miracle is described in Alcoholics Anonymous, it always begins with something happened. 
And, uh, you know, we were people who would not mix. One woman's uh, husband owned the biggest hotel in Washington, D.C., and uh, they had a home in Georgetown that covered a square block. I was living in the basement of a house in the Skid Row section of Washington, D.C., and my life was over. And they absolutely insisted I come to their parties. And I would go across town, and I would go to that fine home in Georgetown. And I was told I was just like everybody else. And you know, I believed I was. Today I joined, I remember there was a man named, man named Dick L. I was over five weeks and I went to this meeting and, uh, and Dick met me at the door. Dick's still very active in the DC area. And I never forget this because he came up to me and he said, I don't believe I've seen you at this meeting before. And I said, well, I'm, this is my first time. And he said, well, my name's Dick and I'm, I'd like to welcome you. He said, what's your name? And I said, Keith. And he said, tell me, Keith, he said, uh, uh, where do you work? And I said, well, I think I still work at the university. I'm not sure. They, they haven't made up their minds yet, and, uh, and uh, which they had. They were awfully kind to me. But uh, And he said, uh, tell me, are you married? And I said, no, I'm separated. And he said, do you have any children? And I said, yeah, I have two little girls, but she won't let me see them. And uh, it, she, she had some help from the judge. But... Um, <laughs> but... Uh, and he said to me, he said, you know, I've never seen a man stay sober and not be able to see his children. And uh, and that's all nice. I mean, that's the nice stuff you say, you know. And uh, I, I was socialized. I knew how to do those things. But uh, what happened the next week was what impressed me. I came back to that meeting and I walked in that door and this man walked up to me. And of course, I didn't remember his name. I mean, I was always thinking about me. And he said, Keith, isn't it? And I said, yes, it is. He said, I'm Dick. I said, I remember and um, and he said, uh, how are things at the university? And I said, they're really fine. I said, they're just great. And he said, that's nice. And he said, uh, have you been able to talk to Kelly and Kimberly? He remembered the names of my children. And that's when I became a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's when I knew that it wasn't like a cocktail party where you where you spout the platitudes and pat one another on the back and that sort of thing. This is a place where people truly care what happens to other people. And it'll happen to you quickly. I remember uh, going to a meeting one time, and I was sober a few months, I guess, and, and I said to my sponsor, my sponsor's name was Dan, and, and I said, I said, Dan, when will I stop being a newcomer? And um, he said, well, I said, whenever you get mad every time, or you stop getting mad when they say newcomer. And... Um, <laughs> I always give you cryptic answers like that, and um, so we went on to the meeting, and um, and uh, he came uh, the next week. He picked me up. Uh, I used to drive to two or three meetings a week, and he'd drive to two or three when we go together. And um, and he picked me up, and we're driving along. And I said to him, I says, you know, I hope Bill will be at this meeting. And he said, who's Bill? I said, Bill's the new guy who came last week. I said it was his first meeting. I said, every day I prayed that God would keep me sober and keep you sober and keep Bill sober. And he looked at me and smiled. And he said, you're no longer a newcomer. You know, we stop being a newcomer when we're granted the grace to think about the welfare of another human being. Now, I wasn't good at it. I'm probably not good at it today. But that was the beginning. Yeah. And if you're kind of new to Alcoholics Anonymous, and we had a number of people last night who were in their first year, and I, I really want to congratulate you, especially the people who were in their first month. 
I could no more have been in a group this big than fly to the moon. I mean, I'd have been hanging from the ceiling someplace. I mean, I, and, and I really congratulate you for being here. And if you're sitting there hating me and the other speakers, that's normal. You're supposed to, right? <laughs> and what you're thinking is true. You probably are smarter than me. Um, <laughs> but I've had a lot of coffee to drink, and I've been in a lot of cigarette smoke. So, you know, i got a reason for being as dumb as I am. But... Um, <laughs> But I, I truly welcome you here, and, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. You are truly the lifeblood of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my prayer for you is that, that you hang around here until a miracle happens, because there are great miracles here. And we're not the miracles. Uh, I'm convinced of that. The miracle took place in 1935. In 1935, powers came together, ideas that were centuries old and hatched in the mind of God, came together in a town not far from here, where a couple losers got together at somebody else's house, which is the way it usually is with alcoholics, and uh, <laughs> and magic happened, and you know, it had been in the happening and the making for a while, there were people who had cared about these people, and people had prayed for these people, and there was tremendous power running around. A tremendous power, and and it came together, and it was like uh, Hegel's uh, Wolfgeist, this incredible power just settled on Earth. You know, a power that had been waited for for a long, long time. I often wondered how long people waited for fire to happen, and, and how long mankind had waited for some idiot to try to roll something around instead of square, and invent a wheel. And 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 I, I know how many thousands of years we waited for something like Alcoholics Anonymous to happen. And it happened there. And no one would predict that it would ever work. I mean, who could predict? I mean, if if you were to pick someone, would you pick a proctologist and a guy who just lost again? I mean, to start something that, uh, you know, you wouldn't. Uh, so God had to pick these people to do this thing. And then this tremendous energy began to be emanated. You know, it was from uh, man to man, woman to woman. And it just spread all over the world. And it was made up of losers. I mean, truly losers. People who are at the jumping off point, you know, or at the crossroads. And, and his power that's outside of us began to happen to us. And a philosophy that flew in the face of everything that was ever known, you know. Uh, you know, we came to realize that it wasn't mom or dad who did this to us. It was uh, alcoholism. And yet, at that time, the prevailing thought was it was uh, something happened to us. And it was sexual in nature. Was, you know, everybody was a repressed homosexual or something. I don't know what we were. And uh, But it were all the prevailing thoughts that, you know, we, we needed willpower and we had to learn to drink like gentlemen and ladies and, and all that stuff. And all the prevailing thoughts were there. And this flew in the face of all of it. You know, the, it was the beginning of the time when people were starting to say, you know, it's all within you. The power is in you. You have to visualize. You have to do this. You have to do that. You know, and, you know, I wish I used to drink martinis and think that way. I mean, um, uh, and then the existentialists were running wild, you know, and life doesn't make sense. And I remember thinking I read Jean Paul Sartre and said life doesn't make sense. I said, well, thank God, because that's the way I see it. And um and, and, and then it, and then Alcoholics Anonymous said, no, you don't understand. There's this incredible hope here. And, you know, the hope lies not with you. The hope lies with what you do for another. 
And this thing began to grow and began to grow. And, and, and so the miracle happened against all odds in 1935 in Akron, Ohio. And, and I'm not a miracle. I'm just a guy who was smart enough to get involved in a miracle and lucky enough to get involved in a miracle. And if you're kind of new, you don't think it'll work for you. I understand that. I don't believe it'll work for me. There are days I still don't believe it'll work for me. I really mean I have to pinch myself, you know, that this can't be happening. And But it'll work for you. And you don't need to believe it'll work for you because the second step always begins with others. You know, there are people around me who believe it would work for me. My sponsor, Dan, believed it would work for me. And I used to call him up and I'd say, are you sure this is going to work? He said, I'm positive. He said, I've never been more sure of anything in my life. I said, well, thank God, because I'm having a lot of doubts. And uh, and he said, well, you just ask me when you have doubts. And, and it got to the point where I'd just call. He'd say, hello. I'd say, you sure? He'd say, positive. We'd hang up. You know, that's all it took. You know? <laughs> Didn't take much encouragement. And, and the reason I was certain he couldn't work for me, because I, I was crazy. You guys were alcoholic, but I was crazy. And... Uh, and I really was around the bend. I mean, uh, I could never shut my mind off or any of that stuff. I just couldn't do it. I, it was completely out of my control. And uh, it would tell me things I didn't want to hear. You're never going to make it. They're going to find out you're not really an alcoholic. You're a head case. Um, you're going to be alone the rest of your life. What difference does it make? You're impotent. You know, I mean, stuff I just didn't want to be reminded of. And and it was always there. And it was always talking to me. And, uh, and yet it would quiet down. And... Uh, and after the meeting, during the Lord's Prayer, I'd feel that moment of peace. It might be the only moment of peace, the only moment of certainty, the only moment of clarity all day, but it was there. And I knew it. And I knew that they were right. And by the time I got home, I would have chased it away with resentment that I have to, I'm still living on Skid Row, and it's only been five weeks, and I'm still here, and, you know, everybody else has a house, and you have a basement, and uh, somebody else's house, and, and, and on a... But if I get back to that meeting the next day, which I certainly did, in the end of that meeting at the Lord's Prayer, I'd be certain again it would work for me. And then I'd have those horrible experiences, those things when... I remember one day I got up and I, I, I was all dressed up to go to work, and I was in my car and, and I couldn't remember where I worked. Now think about that. I couldn't remember where I worked, and I was panicked, you know, and I just in it. I was terror-stricken, and my heart was pounding and everything. I said, where do you work? Where do you work? You know, and, and I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember what I did, and... Um, and it was, wouldn't have surprised my boss, I guess. But uh, <laughs> but I, I stopped at a phone booth, and, and I called my sponsor. And I didn't want my sponsor to know I didn't know where I worked. Because would you want to sponsor a guy who didn't know where he worked? And, uh, and so I just said to him, how you doing, Dan? He said, I'm fine. How are you? And I said, well, I said, I'm fine. I was just wondering how you're doing. And, uh, and he said, what's all that noise? I said, well, I'm calling you from a phone booth. And he said, your car break down? I said, no, car's fine, Dan. I was just wondering how you're doing. And uh, <laughs> finally, he said, what's the matter, buddy? I said, well, it's, it's, it's not a big problem, Dan. I just can't seem to recall where I work. And um, <laughs> and he always said the same thing. He always said, oh, you've got the old I can't remember where I work problem, huh? He said, a lot of us have had that. And that's a lie. You know, nobody's, uh, you know. And... Uh, and he told me, it was amazing. The minute he said it, I knew, I go, oh, yeah, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know. And then he said to me, he said, it's really frightening, isn't it? I said, Dan, I said, are you sure I'm an alcoholic? Are you sure I'm not just, I'm, I said, maybe I just have really a lot of brain damage. He said, well, maybe you do. He said, we won't know that for a while. And he said, uh, I said, well, when will we know it? He said, well, when you finish your steps. He said, then it won't matter. 
I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, good thing about brain damage is you keep forgetting you have it. And um, <laughs> he got all these irrelevant answers. And, um, and then he said to me, he said, you know, the book says that to pour that much alcohol in our brains is a very unnatural thing. And he said, uh, he said, you're going to continue to have problems like this, thinking problems and memory problems and stuff like that. And he said, but for most of it passes. And he said, it will get increasingly better. And I said, are you sure? He said, I'm positive. I said, you see anything in me that tells you that I'm different from the rest of you? He said, not a thing. And he said, I would like to make a suggestion. I said, anything. I'm honest, willing, and open-minded, and uh, especially after I've been humiliated. And um, he said, if you ever have this problem about where you work again, he said, if you can just remember to look at the front bumper of your car, he said, you have a parking permit for the university. And I remember thinking... Where do these people learn these things, you know? <laughs> they make life look so easy. <laughs> and, and, you know, my, my early sobriety was madness. It was utter madness, but it was also magnificence in so many ways. I, I was sober three months, and, and, and I, I got a letter and an opportunity to study in France with, uh, with a cytologist and... Uh, a wonderful man, and 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 just a, probably the greatest cytologist in the world at the time, and uh, he just died in the last year. And uh, God, I was just thrilled. And but I knew my sponsor wouldn't let me go. I knew that that I knew how sponsorship works. Sponsors find out what you really want to do, and they say no. That's how sponsors work. <laughs> and um, but I figured I'd give him the satisfaction of saying no because this was a biggie, and he needed a lift. And. Um, <laughs> So I went to lunch with him, and I showed him the letter, and I'll never forget it. He just beamed. He absolutely beamed, and he said, this is magnificent. And I said, you mean I can go? He said, you have to go. He said, this isn't about you. He said, the best you could do is crap your pants over there on Skid Row. He said, he said this is about Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, this isn't a victory for you. This is a victory for Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, this is how we know that it works, because we get to watch these things happen to other people. And and then uh and I had three months before I left and, and, and I said to him, I said, I didn't think you'd let me go. I didn't think you'd think I was ready. And he told me, he said, That's the key, Keith. He said, I want you to remember this always. You can do anything as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous as long as you prepare properly. He said, If you're spiritually fit, you can do anything. And you know, I found that to be true. I, I know a lot of people have rules and this and that and everything, and I and I'm, rules may be fine, they really are. But, but, you know, the key is whether or not you're, you're spiritually fit. And, um, I, I spoke some years ago at a, in a, in a nice city and a man picked me up. I just never forget this. It's always struck me. I pray for him often. And a man picked me up and, and it couldn't have been nicer. We went and played this wonderful golf course and then, and then it was his club and then we, we had a group of AA folks met there for dinner after we played and then he took me to his home. He was going to host me. It was a one day event the next day and, he took me to his home before he took me to the to the hotel, and he went in there. And it's beautiful, beautiful home, and uh, and uh, so he's showing me around the place, and, and his wife, and he introduced me to her, and she nodded and didn't say much, and uh, and then he said, he said, you know, he said, and he showed me this had this huge, beautiful teak bar. He said, you're probably one of those people who believe in a dry house, huh? And I said, well, I said, you know, I lived in basements and I'm not much on damp houses and uh you know trying to make light of it but uh 
But he said, no, no, you probably think you shouldn't have alcohol in the house. I said, well, I don't have an opinion on your house. I said, it's none of my business what you do in your house. He said, well, he said, you know, you all, you, a lot of you guys are alike. And he said, I'll tell you, he said, I'm going to have alcohol in my house. He said, because he said, I'm not the only one who lives here. You know, he said, my wife lives here and she, she has a right to have a drink if she wants to. And she piped up and says, as far as I'm concerned, you could get all that shit out of here, which told me everything I needed to know. And, um, and then he went on and he said to me, and I was really trying to be nice, you know, because I am a, a guest and didn't have a car. And, um, not. and then he said to me, he said, I'll never drink. Do you want to know why? And I'd had all I could take. And I said, I'd be very interested in that. I said, because if you can share it with me, I'll pass it around. And, um, and he said, uh, I'll show you why. And he showed me. And above his bar, my heart just stopped. Above his bar, he had glued his AA chips and tokens. And he said, he said, I have five up there, five years. He said, no, four years. He said, soon I'll be picking up six and I'm going to put my five year chip up there. And I now know, you know, I know that I had known that six years, a very difficult time and dangerous time in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I, he said to me, he said, if I ever come here to drink, I'll see those chips and I won't drink. And I said to him, pal, I, I was even willing to walk. I said, pal, if you come here for a drink, the last thing you'll ever see are those chips. I said, because you'll, you'll be drunk before you get here. And I said, my fear is you're halfway there now. And he threw me out of his house. And, uh, and I, unfortunately, a couple of months later, he was drunk. Of course he was. He was already drunk. He was no longer powerless over alcohol. He had alcoholism instead of alcoholism. And, uh, and he'd fallen into the trap, which is such a danger for so many of us, and that is to intellectualize the facts of the case and not recognize that what keeps us sober isn't what we know. What keeps us sober is the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and, and the power of Alcoholics Anonymous is all of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not just the meetings. I mean, I've seen people get drunk and they'll say to me, I don't know what happened. I go to a lot of meetings. And going to meetings is important. I would never minimize that. But I know a lot of people go to church and they aren't Catholic. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean that. I mean, I know a lot of people who do a lot of things and they aren't what, where they show up. Being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous is a lot more than going to meetings. Uh, I, I often wondered, was this man sponsoring anybody? If he had been, I bet he cut him loose. You know? Because, you know, sponsorship's one of the great chains that keeps us sane. Being sponsored and sponsoring. One of the great chains that keeps us sane. I, I have, I, I'm fortunate enough to be sober long enough to be obnoxious and get away with it. And, um, and, and a woman came to me a few years ago and said, will you help me find a sponsor? I said, well, you have a sponsor. She said, well, she's letting go of all of her babies because she's got so much going on. She doesn't have enough for her and for the, for us too. And I, you know, I said, you stay where you are. And I called this woman up and I said, get your buns over here. And, uh, and I met her for lunch and we had a little come to Jesus meeting and, uh, and, uh, you know, and she really believed, she really believed that her life was so chaotic and over, and overwhelmed that, uh, she was at that 10, 12 year period, which is also a difficult time. Her life was so overwhelmed that, that she had to cut things out of her life. And she said, you know, my husband is, is, is drinking again and, and my daughter, my children are doing this, I'm doing that. I said, okay, get a divorce and run the kids out, but keep your pigeons, you know. Because you need them. You don't need a husband and kids. 
keep your pigeons. And, uh, and she, uh, you know, started to laugh, of course, because she realized what she'd done, you know. She was in this process of cutting out the very things that had her tied to sobriety. And it, it makes sense, you know, unless you sound it off of somebody who isn't where you are, it makes sense. And, uh, and she, uh, called all the girls together, and she had sponsored like a half dozen, and sponsored them well, and she called them all together and made amends, and, and asked them to forgive her. And, uh, they told him that she's going through a difficult time. And then I said, now, you get a good sponsor. You know, don't get one who holds your hand and, and agrees with you leaving. Get yourself a good sponsor. And she did, and she's sober to this day. And, uh, and that's what we do for one another. And I'm sober a pretty long time. And two weeks ago, I got a call from my sponsor, and he told me to get my buttons someplace. And, uh, and I found an excuse not to go. And he called me again Friday. And I'll tell you, I'll be there this time. And, uh, and I'm awfully glad I got a man who's sober 44 years who watches me. I'm awfully glad I do. Now it's going to be a very uncomfortable coffee, but uh, but I've been I've had uncomfortable coffees with him for 15 years, and uh, <laughs> and I always tell him he's right, even if he isn't. But uh, no, no, he's he's always right. But that's the way Alcoholics Anonymous works. I mean, we never outgrow the need for this. We never outgrow the need for this. I have a wonderful friend who lives in Charlotte. A couple of weeks ago, I set him down, and I said to him, how long are you sober? He said, 24 years. I said, how long am I sober? He said, 27 years. I said, I'm your sponsor. I said, you're nuts, and you need a sponsor. Now, you can fire me when you're sane again. Of course, what sane person would want to? I said, but, um, I said, but you need a sponsor, and I'm your sponsor. And, you know, he started to cry, and he thanked me. And he said, I've been lost. He said, I've been frantic. And I said, I've been frantic for you, and so have a lot of your other friends. And he's on the trail now. He's back on, he's back on the path. That's the way this thing works. And we never do it alone. We never do it alone. Alcoholics Anonymous means never doing it alone. The people who do it alone, the people who become strangers to Alcoholics Anonymous, always return to that old thinking, and then eventually return to that old behavior. Early on, I was told that Alcoholics Anonymous is about it's about action. It's about certain kind of actions and certain kinds of behaviors that we develop. And um, and of course, they all center around the steps. You know, I was sober. I was sober a few years and, and a couple years, I guess. And, and my first sponsor, Dan, sort of drifted away from the program. And, uh, and I was terribly hurt and I was angry about the whole thing. And and so I began to sponsor myself, and which meant I had an idiot for a sponsor. And. Um, and uh, and then after a few years, I was just, uh, sorry, a few years, I was just crazy. And, and I went to see a man named Sandy B. And uh, and 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 uh, so I, I said to Sandy, could, could we get together for coffee or something? I said, I'd like to talk to you about sponsorship. And he said, well, he said, get your running shoes and join, join me in my apartment Saturday morning at 7.30. He lived over in Arlington, Virginia. And I didn't have running shoes. I had a few cartons of cigarettes, but, but I didn't have any running shoes. And um, so I went and bought some running shoes, and I, I put some dirt on them so they looked like I'd been running. And I mean, I wasn't phony or dishonest or anything. And um, and, and so I put some dirt on the shoes, and I, I was over there at 7.30, and we started running. Now, when you smoke three or four packs of cigarettes a day, you don't run far. So you you tend to get to the point. And... Um, so about 50 yards down the road, I said to Sandy, I said, I, I need a sponsor. Would you consider sponsoring me? And he said, uh, he said, you're having a bad time, aren't you? And I said, I certainly am. And he said, I've noticed that. And he said, tell me, Keith, do you believe in God? 
Now, I knew it was a critically important question, and I knew that I had always shaded answers, and I knew I had always cut corners, and I knew that there was a streak of dishonesty in me, born in fear, that was always present in everything I ever did, relationships, answers of every kind. And I knew that this was an answer upon which my life depended. I knew it was one of those moments that I was truly at the jumping off point. And I said to him, you know, I had an old idea that, that said that if you have any doubt about God at all, it means you don't believe. Now, I wasn't taught this in the church I went to or the schools I went to. That was my idea. But uh, if I had any doubt at all, it meant I didn't believe. And so with that information, that old idea, I said to him, you know, I'm a, I don't think I do believe in God. And he said to me, oh, he said, that's too bad. He said, that means you're probably going to die. And I just stopped. And he kept running. I mean, what'd he care? And um, and I thought for a minute, and I caught up with him. I says, you know, Sandy, I'm willing to go home and reconsider my position. He, he said, if you're willing to reconsider your position, I'll sponsor you. And I understood what he meant, you know. Am I at last ready to let go and to let God? And I found out later that doubting God is a perfectly normal thing to do. Doubt is a sign of faith. Because, you know, if, if we knew, it wouldn't be faith. We knew it wouldn't be faith. And so doubt is just a sign of faith. It's part of faith. So if you have great doubt, it means you have great faith. And uh, and so if you're doubting God, you know. And I was always afraid because I was afraid God wouldn't let me do something. You know, I was afraid he didn't want me to go to bed with your wife. You know, and, and he didn't understand that this was different. And... Um, <laughs> And all that craziness. So all of my reservations about God are always born in selfishness and self-centeredness. And they're always born, just like the book says in Self-Centered Fear, I'm either afraid I'm going to lose something that I have or not get something that I may need or want. And that began the journey for me. And uh, and it's been a magnificent journey. Uh, Sandy raised me, literally raised me in the steps. He loved at 12 and 12. And... Uh, and he just loved the 12 and 12. He used, I said, well, what about the big book? He said, big book's wonderful. He said, I read it all the time. He said, but you and I are going to work in the 12 and 12. And I said, we are. He said, yeah. And he said, uh, he said, Bill wrote the big book. He said, we about three years. And he said, a bunch of guys got together. He said, then, then he said, the, the 12 and 12 was written. He said, we're about 15 years. He said, if he didn't learn anything in 12 years, he said, we're in the wrong program. And, uh, and, and so he would have me read a step in the 12 and 12 every day. And, and I did that. And then, um, and then um, we talked an awful lot about the second step. And I'm convinced that the most difficult step for me was the second step. I'm, I'm really convinced of that. It was hard for me to believe that anything outside of me would do anything for me. You know, I grew up in poverty. And boy, when you grow up in poverty, you really think that it's up to you. You know, I went to work when I was, I had my first job when I was 12, but I was working before that. And and you had to scratch for everything. and uh, and, and it really seems as though nothing outside of you would take care of you. You know, that things like God helps those who help themselves becomes a, a, one of the principal uh, sayings in my life and that sort of thing. And, and then, you know, my time in the Marine Corps, and uh, I was the smallest NCO that I knew and probably still am. And um, and I had to scrap and fight hard in the Marine Corps, and, and, and I did well. I won all Dress Blues Award and Outstanding Man's Award and all that stuff off of Paris Island. But I really had to drive myself to do it. And I always thought that everything came from me and nothing came 
from outside of me. And I certainly didn't believe I'd be taken care of by anything outside of me. And um, and I was wrong. That I'd always looked in the wrong place for the answers. Uh, I'd always looked inside of myself. And, and all that was in me was what I had put there or what had accumulated there. What I needed was what you had, what was outside of me. You know, I'll tell you the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous is you may make lousy decisions with your life. But if you consider my life, you always make great decisions for my life. And that's it. I can make lousy decisions for myself. But for the people around me, I can help them make good decisions. So so the, the information and knowledge really isn't self-generated. It really comes from someplace else. And, and then in that third step, I got on my knees with another human being. I'd never done that. I got on my knees with another human being, made a decision, turned my world and life over to the care of God. And then I began that business, and I had the hardest time starting a fourth step. I, I don't know about uh, you, but I, mean, I was by Theta Kappa and stuff. I mean, I had a pretty good academic record, Sigma Psi and all that business. The problem was I couldn't understand a fourth step. I would just call him. I mean, it was just way too confusing for me. And um, so Sandy... He said to me, I said, I gotta do this right. And he said, no, you gotta do it. He said, uh, he said, doing it right isn't what gets people sober. He said, doing it is what gets people sober. And he said, uh, and I said, well, I heard a guy say that you can only take these steps one time. And he said, yeah, but you take Adam for years. And, uh, so he sat me down with a yellow pad and he told me, he said, a yellow pad and a number two pencil. Because I used to collect books. Because I figured if I got the right book, I'd take a good fourth step. And uh, I just didn't have the right thing to write on. And uh, so he gave me a yellow pad and a number two pencil. He said, there's a spiritual axiom involved here, Keith. He said, you can't lie to yourself with a yellow pad and a number two pencil. And I thought, well, what's he know? I know. You know, he's the sponsor. So I used a yellow pad and a number two pencil. And at the, at the top of the page, he wrote fears. And he said, I want you to list every fear you can think of. He said, then come and see me. You know, so I'd be, I said, well, I don't have any fears. <laughs> and so he said, it seems to me one time you told me you were afraid of dogs. I said, I'm afraid of big dogs. <laughs> and he said, well, I'll put down big dogs. So I wrote down big dogs. And I thought for a minute, and I said, you know, I'm not wild about little dogs. And uh, <laughs> that's how it started. And one of the things I discovered when I looked at this, it was an amazing thing, was was that uh, it was very different for me. Uh, I had fears that, that were in conflict with one another. And, and it explained why I would be on the peak of success and fail. Why I would reach down and pull the rug out from under myself. And then I'd blame them for what happened. I would just get to the point where I was successful. And I'd sabotage myself. And I understood why. I had a fear of uh, failure. But I also had a fear of success. You know, early in my sobriety, I was told to go to the Foxhall group, and I didn't, I told my sponsor, I'm not going. And he said, why? I said, they're a bunch of snobs. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, they're over there on Reservoir Road. And I said, they're a bunch of snobs. And he said, uh, you ever been there? I said, no. <laughs> and he said, how do you know they're a bunch of snobs? And I said, I just know they are. He said, all those people who live over there are rich and they're a bunch of snobs. Yeah. Where do you think this came? You think this might have come from the poverty of my childhood? You know, embellished by me, of course. And um, and he said, look, he said, there are two guys speaking. I really want you to hear. And I said, Dan, I'm not going. And he said, if you don't go, I'm going to break your knee. Now, we had a deal. <laughs> if I did what he said, he wouldn't break my knee. And so I said, all right, all right. So so I wore the rattiest clothes I could find. You know? 
And, and I, you know, they had, they used cups and saucers. I told him, I said, you know, they use cups and saucers? He said, well, yeah. He said, you know, they're an old group. And he said, they probably don't want to put styrofoam in the environment. They're just starting to think about stuff like that. And, and he said, what do you care what they drink their coffee out of? And, and I said, and they have those little stuffed mushroom caps and things. And sandwiches with no crust on them. And, uh, and he said, what do you care? He said, he said, I said, he said, a, you know, a bunch of the ladies like them making a nice event on Monday night. He said, what do you care? This is none of your business. Just be there. So I found these ratty clothes and I got my own styrofoam cup. And, um, and I went to the Foxhall group and, uh, and you know, Peggy's there. Hi, hi, hi. You know, Peggy. And, um, um, I sat her string of girls with her and, and, um, and I went in and, and, uh, we're going through the line and there's a guy named, Roland H. Roland was a professor of romantic poetry from Georgetown University. Turned out to be a wonderful man. Ended up taking a course from him one day, but, but he had a handlebar mustache. That was the, everybody had mustaches, all the guys. Some of the women did too. All, all the guys, guys had mustaches. And he had handlebar eyebrows. I never saw anything like it. His eyebrows go, you know, classic weird college professor. And he's behind a counter and he leaned over and he said, how do you like our meeting? And I said, the Swedish meatballs suck. And uh, my sponsor hit me in the back. He said, get through the lines. I got through the lines. And I was a wreck. I mean, I was near tears. I, I didn't hear a thing the speaker said or anything. And, and when it was over, Dan said, let's go outside. We're going to talk. And, and the church is gone. It was a beautiful church. And, and it had a, a pretty little garden and with the, a stone or brick, brick benches and things. And we went over and sat on a brick bench. And and he asked me, asked me a simple question. He said, Keith, you want to be poor the rest of your life? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, look, he said, he said, you resent and hate people who are successful. Why? I do not. I want to be successful. He said, you've worked hard your whole life. He said, you've studied and worked and you've done, you know, heroic things and yet you have nothing. It's because of that woman. I said, it's not her. He said, if she's got anything, she didn't get it from you. And he said, what's the problem? And he said, I'll tell you what the problem is. He said, somewhere along the line, you got the idea that rich people or successful people were bad. And uh, and you don't want to be bad. So just before you succeed, you shoot yourself in the foot to guarantee failure. And what he said was true. And he said, these are wonderful people. He said, Alcoholics Anonymous is a wonderful opportunity for you to meet all kinds of people. He said the wealth and the richness of personalities and types of people in Alcoholics Anonymous, he said, can't be calculated. He said it'd be the finest education you've ever received just to get to know the members of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, don't cut out a large percentage of them. He said, because a lot of the people who are hanging around with you now will be successful one day. We'll have material things one day. And he said, don't cut yourself off from those people. He said, if you choose to be poor the rest of your life, that's your business. He said, but but don't cut yourself off from those people. And of course, it was tremendous wisdom. And so one of the great fears I had was a fear of failure. But I also had a fear of success. I couldn't understand why I could never thrive in a relationship. And then I looked at that list of fears. And, you know, one of the things I had was a tremendous fear of loneliness or being alone, aloneness. But I also had a fear of intimacy. So I would do whatever I do to ingratiate myself to people so that I could become close to them. Then immediately I began to push them away. And so I understood something about my poor first wife looking at me with the tears running down her cheeks, saying, is there something wrong with me? 
what do you want? I can't figure out what you want. And everything inside of me was screaming, I don't know, I can't figure it out either, but if I could, I would. And of course, that sheet of fears is where I figured out why I was a guy who couldn't own a house. Why I was a guy who didn't want to own more than he could put in the trunk of a car and get out of town. Why I was a guy who didn't want to learn last names and didn't want to know my neighbors and anything. I was a guy who was always on the move. Because I was a guy who was absolutely riddled and ruled by fear. And then we did the same thing with resentments. And we did the same thing with sexual behaviors. And then I got with a man, Ed C., when, uh, well, what Ed told me to do was very instructive to me. He told me, he said, I want you to, he said, where do you experience God? And, and uh, I said, well, in AA meetings. He said, well, I said, where else? And I thought back to that little chapel where I begged for my daughter's life that night. And uh, he said, I want you to go there. He said, I want you to take this, so I want you to talk to God about this. So he said, uh, he said, for you, he said, you're a special case. And he said, I want you to do exactly what that step says. And he says, we admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. And I don't know why he, he told me to do this. Uh, he just knew, intuitively knew. And, and I went to that chapel, and I got to put on a three-piece suit. And, and I went there, and, and, and I reminded God that I'd been away for a while. And I said, uh, but you remember me. I was the guy who had served mass in the snow. And, you know, you have to let them know who you are. And... Uh, and uh, and then I sat down, and for the first time in my life, I was honest with God. I just told him exactly what I was. And I left there free. I left there free of the fear of God. You know, when a big, big book talks about fear of God, it, it, it means awe or respect. It doesn't mean terror. And, uh, and yet I was filled with the terror of God. And, uh, and I left there knowing I could talk to God about anything. Then I went home, and I... Uh, told myself, I looked in the mirror and told myself my fifth step. Then I went and found Ed, and I'll tell you, I would have told the bus driver. I thought I was afraid of people. I wasn't afraid of people. I was afraid of God, and I was afraid of me. Because I was so disappointed in who I was and what I was and what I had become. And I knew God must be disappointed, too. And I found out he wasn't. Jeez, God loves me a lot. I was telling a guy the other day, he's a new guy, just having a hard time. I said, I'm going to pray you I said because God it really likes me a lot and uh, and he does a lot of stuff I ask him he said I know God likes you he said he sure doesn't like me and I said well he likes me and I said I'll tell him that you're a buddy of mine and he'll like you and, uh, and you know he does God loves me an awful lot but you know God doesn't love me any more now than he did when I was counting in that office watching my little girl die without a father you know, uh, people ask me, so I'll tell you, uh, uh, there's a great philosopher named Blaise Pascual, philosopher and mathematician, a Frenchman, and um, he said that uh, God created man in his own image, and unfortunately man returned to favor, and, uh, and I have created a God in my illness that would kill a little girl because her dad was sick. And fortunately, that's not the way God is, and uh, I was told that, uh, that if she lived, she'd be retarded, and... Uh, and my daughter Kimberly is 30 years old. She's an honor graduate from Auburn University and, uh, is a mother of two of my granddaughters. And, uh, so God didn't kill her because I couldn't drink. Could not drink. You know, the power of this, uh, this program always goes beyond description, but you know, 
I, I, as I look around Alcoholics Anonymous and, and I, I see so many people who so desperately want what we've been freely given and yet stop before the journey is completed. Um, and I think one of the places that people stop is the six and seven step. And the six and seven step seems so, so, uh, uh, you know, insignificant, you know. I always thought, well, of course, if I knew what was right, I'd want to do it. Um, and, and I remember, you know, just horrible, uh, this horrible habit of mine of lying, you know, and I talked about it in my fifth step and fourth step. I wrote about it and I talked about it in my fifth step and my sixth step. I watched myself lie and 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 uh, and when I didn't want to, I mean, I'd, I'd be standing there telling somebody, my mouth would just lie, my brain would say, "Stop that," and my mouth would say, "You stay out of this. Uh, you think I'll talk?" And um, you know, we may need to know how to lie again one day. And um, and I saw how utterly powerless I was. What I had become was someone who couldn't do what was right. It wasn't a matter of knowing what was right. I always knew what was right. Now, when I was drunk and couldn't change that, I began to try to change what was right. I, I became a, an existential, you know, existentialist. I, I became someone who uh, was always saying, well, that's one way to look at it. You know, I used to do that a lot. I did that with Sandy, which was a bad mistake. I, I'd, I'd say, well, that's, uh, you know, that's one way to look at it. Like he said to me one time, he said, well, it's like saying what came first, the chicken or the egg. And uh, I said, it's like saying what came first, the chicken or the egg. He said, the chicken. And I said, well, you don't know that. He said, I know I don't. He said, but somebody around here has got to make a decision. You can't. <laughs> so I, I discovered in Alcoholics Anonymous that there is a right and wrong. There isn't a right for you and a right for me and a religious and that. Now, we don't tell one another how to live our lives. But behind all of this, there really is right and wrong. There really is the right way to act, and there really is the wrong way to act. There really is. And, uh, and you know, I just recently lost a guy I sponsored because, uh, because all of a sudden he could make decisions in his life. Uh, like he'd known someone six weeks he's going to marry her. And I said, well, why don't we discuss this? He said, I'm not going to discuss this. I don't need to talk to you about what I'm doing with my life. I'm 30 years old. I said, last month we talked for four weeks about you taking a new job. I said, taking a wife isn't worth a, a cup of coffee and an hour's discussion. No, I don't want you in that part of my life. I said, you just fired me as your sponsor. If I can't be in your life, I can't be your sponsor. This isn't about smorgasbord. This is about surrender. And this is about really, truly coming to believe that somebody outside of us knows what's better for us than we do. I, I, was, I was sober 13 years when I met the woman who's my wife today. I'm madly in love with her. At first sight, I mean that. At first sight, I was just struck by her, and she's uh, and I knew what I'd do. I'd do what I always did. All my relationships ended up this thing. They all ended up selfish. They all ended up self-centered. You know? And I usually picked women who were as good at it as I was. And it was always a disaster at the end, you know, you know with hurt feelings and everything else. And uh, and I was sober. I was forty years old, and I was sober you know, a number of years. Forty-two. I was sober thirteen years. And uh, and I'd just gotten out of another one of those relationships. And I'd spent all night on my knees asking God to please change me. And the deal I made with God was I was no longer going to violate any of the great gifts I'd been given. I was no longer going to violate myself or any other woman. I was going to treat myself and, and every woman I knew with respect from now on. And we weren't going to jump in the sack. And we weren't going to do all those things that we did instead of growing up and getting to know one another. All those things that were easy. And uh, and I said, I'm going to live a celibate life and I'm going to put every drop of energy I have into working with new people and you're going to have to take my sex life and you're going to have to take 
my life. And if I'm ever going to be married, it's going to be because you say I am and not because what I want or I think I need. And, and I, I got up and uh, that night I went to a meeting with a friend and, and I, I met Julia. And uh, and I knew what I'd do. I'd do with that what I'd done with everything. Because the one thing I proved to myself was is that knowledge, self-knowledge doesn't avail anything. And it doesn't avail anything in relationships either. And so I went to Tom and I said, Tom, you're married the way I want to be married one day. Would you tell me how you did that? And he said, I will, but don't do anything until we talk. And I didn't. And you know what was amazing to me? Every instinct I had was wrong. We didn't, I almost, I was going to take her to a conference with me. I wasn't married to her. I was going to take her to a conference with me. But we were going to have different rooms. And I had this all worked out, you know. So I said, well, I'm going to go run it by Tom. And I went to see Tom, and I'm running all this stuff by him. He's got a way of smiling, you know. <laughs> and he said to me, he said, uh, when are you speaking? I said, Saturday. He said, that's quite an honor. I said, it certainly is. And he said, well, where will Julia be? And I said, well, she'll probably be on the front row. And he said, tell me, will she affect your message? And I said, you know, if she wouldn't, I wouldn't be trying to run this crap past you, would I? And, um, <laughs> and of course that's wrong. I'm, if I'm not married to someone, I'm not going to bring them to your conference and take the chance of, of uh, insulting you. Um, and, uh, insulting alcoholics and honest. And, uh, so I didn't do it. And then I, I went to him shortly after that and I said, we're going to have an exclusive relationship. He said, no. And I said, why? He said, you're not ready for that. I said, I'm 43 years old. He said, I know, that's a pity, isn't it? And, um, <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, you'll know when you're ready. He said, you have a lot of good friends in AA. He said, take them to dinner and take them to movie. You don't have to be intimate, just have So I did. And, uh, and then, you know, a few months later, I realized what the problem was. You know what I had always done was, I always thought if a woman could pick anybody but me, she would. And if I had one who at that moment was willing to pick me, then I needed to capture her. So I would make an exclusive relationship. And then I'd end up resenting her for what had happened to me. And I went and explained that to Tom. He said, you're ready. So we had an exclusive relationship. So I said to him, I said, we're going to get married. He said, well, you can't. And I said, why? He said, well, you're not engaged. I said, Tom, that's an old-fashioned idea. He said, it got to be that way for a reason, Keith. And... uh so that, that Christmas, I gave her a ring, and we were getting ready to go to midnight mass, and she had come over to my house, and, and I had a fire in the fireplace, and I, I was dressed up, and, and uh, I had a ring in my pocket, and I'd practiced, and uh, I'd talked to her parents, and they said they would be delighted to have me as a son-in-law, and, and I got, I was ready to ask her, and she got up to go powder her nose, and I chased her in the bathroom, and I put the ring on the wrong finger with the wrong hand, and asked her if she would be my fiance, and she fell into my arms and cried, and we went off to Mass that night, and we, every time we looked at each other, we just cried. And, and I found myself doing strange things. I found myself sharing with her my schedule. I'm going here this time and here, and is there anything that you want to do? And let me put it down. And, and, and I, 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 I wouldn't tell my wife where I was going. And here I am telling the woman I'm engaged to what my life is like, and, and do you have any objections to this? And, and, you know, what I realized was my life was her business, because I was asking her to consider sharing the rest of it. And uh, and I learned something about the otherness. And, and Tom talked to me before I got married. We're going to live together. He said, no, 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 no. He said, that violates your principles. And he said, you're a long-term member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, people in your community watch you. And he said, you may be the only copy of the big book they ever read. And he said, it's, he said you know, it's, it's morally objectionable to you, to what we stand for, to be living with someone without... And, and the reason we wanted to do it was because 
she had an opportunity to get a job at that time, and we didn't know if three months from then she would. And, you know, three months later we were married, and I carried her across the threshold, and, uh, and uh, a week later she got that job. Of course, God was going to take care of the job. And, uh, and you know, everything, I, and Tom's taught me how to be a husband. Uh, it's not 50-50. He said 50-50 is our way of saying I want to make sure I get money. He said it's about 100%. And he told me things like I'm the spiritual head of my house. I'm not the most spiritual person in my house. My wife's much more spiritual than I am. When I'm around her, her humility sometimes brings me to tears. But I'm the spiritual head, and I bless our house, and I bless her every day. If she's asleep, which she usually is before me. Al-Anons don't hold out long at night. And uh, so, uh, so if she's asleep, I'll bless her. And I'll thank God for putting her in my life. I didn't know how to do any of these things. All I knew how to do was take it. The ninth step of Alcoholics Anonymous would change the way you meet the world. It will make you maximum service to God and to our fellows. And I went to this man who never told me he loved me. And he never told me he loved me. And he just raised 11 of his own children and a few other kids who had no place to go. And I went to make amends to him at a hard time. I'm convinced that if we men don't get it right with Dad, we never get it right with God or our parents or any, or, I mean our wives or anybody else. And, and I went to see my dad, and, and, and I was trying to make amends, and he said to me, remember when you went to work? And I said, you mean at the bowling alley? And he said, yeah. He said, remember your first day? I said, no, I don't. And he said, I took you to lunch. And I said, you did? He said, yeah, we went to Louis hot dog stand. He said, you remember what you had? I said, well, I'm going to go out on a limb here, Dad. Did I have a hot dog? And, um, <laughs> and he said, of course you did, you loon. He calls me, and he says, damn loon. He said, you remember what you drank? And I said, orange pop. I always drank orange pop. And he said, not that day. He said, that day you had root beer. He said, I drank root beer, and I think you thought men who drank, who worked, drank root beer. And he said, I explained to you what it was like to do a good day's work for a good day's pay, and that you respect your boss, but your boss will respect you too. And, and he explained to me how to grow up. And he said, I walked you down to the bus stop, and I had to go to the next town. And he said, uh, son, you want me to come with you on your first day? And, and he said, you said to me, no thanks, Dad. He said, you, he said, I watched my tiny little 12-year-old boy get on the bus. And he said, I watched the bus till it was out of sight, and you never looked back. And he said, from then on, he said, you paid your own way, you bought your own clothes, you paid your own And he said, uh, he said, of all your brothers and sisters, he said, you went to college on your own. He said, you never let me help you. And I thought, oh, my God. I was doing what I thought I was supposed to do. But what I was really doing was I was depriving this man of the one thing he does better and anything in the world, and that is to be a father. And a few months later, I borrowed some money from him for something I didn't need, and, uh, <laughs> and I was able to pay him back. And uh, this past uh, June, I spoke at the West Virginia State Convention in Wheeling, and my dear, dear father was there. And the week before that, we'd had our, our anniversary. It was supposed to be the week before that, but I'd have been invited to Founders Day, and I told him, you go ahead and have it. I'll come up after from Akron after Founders or down after Founders Day. And he simply said, if Keith isn't coming, we're not having a family reunion. And 28 years before that, they lied about when it was so I wouldn't be there. And, uh, and so they canceled it for a week. And, and the now remaining 10 children were there. And, uh, and the kids who he helped raise were there. And uh, their kids and their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. He has 20-something great-grandchildren. And, uh, and I was there. He calls me son number one, and uh, 
And he came to hear me speak. It was the first time he ever heard me speak. When it was over, he came up to me, this this magnificent, frail man. And he put his arms around me. He said, son, I love you so much. I'm so proud of what you are. He said, thanks for everything you do for so many people, especially the people in our family. And I hearken back to the fact that I had almost 20 family members there who were members of Alcoholics Anonymous or Alan Moran and all the rest of it. And it all began with me. So it all began with you, but in our family, it all began with me. The power of God in this program is beyond anything I ever knew. Let me uh, tell you about my brother Terry, and then I'll, I'll sit down. And saying is, going to AA doesn't do these things. Being an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous is what does these things. And, you know, my brother Terry tried to get into AA years be- years before, and um, he said to me that uh, one time he had 90 days, and he said, "I just don't think this is for me." And he went out and drank again. And, and 19 years later, he was in the hospital dying. He had cancer. And I came up to see him. I hadn't been able to see him. He wouldn't let me see him for years. And when I'd come to town, he'd leave. And, so, and I'd never been able to make direct amends to him. And uh, and uh, my parents had their 50th wedding anniversary. And we went up. And it's the first time my wife, Julia, had met him. And she, he's an alcoholic, so she immediately loved him, of course. And, and, uh, but the day of the uh, reunion, he, or the day of the anniversary party, he wasn't there, and he wasn't there, and finally he came late, and he was very, very drunk. And my brothers came to me and said, Terry's here, and he's drunk. And I said, of course he's drunk, he's alcoholic. And they said, he shouldn't be here like that. And I said, of course he shouldn't. And I said, if he had a choice, he wouldn't be. He said, you know, he must love mom and dad an awful lot to be like that, to come here like that. I said, I know where he's been. He's been down the street in a bar trying to get it right trying to get up the courage to be here with him. And I said, why don't we just love him the way he is? And we did, and I made amends to my brother Terry. And six months later, he was in the hospital with cancer. And, uh, and this man had been a great boxer. He's the toughest guy in the family, and uh, the tough people in my family. And he was the toughest one and the smartest and all the rest of it. And I went to see him, and he's laying in his bed, and he's uh, weighed about 90 pounds. And, uh, and we talked, and we talked like we hadn't talked in years. Like I had dreamed about us talking. And uh, he said to me, uh, do you really think there is a God? I said, Terry, I know there is. I said, I know there's a God more certain than I know anything in the world. He said, there has to be. I said, you and I were talking. And he said, do you think God could love a guy like me? And I said, more than you'll appreciate, more than I can appreciate. And we talked, and we talked about things that were important to us as kids in the church and things like that. And I had some of those things, I scapula and a rosary, and I gave them to him. And talked about how to use them and things and I asked him for a favor I asked him if I could hug him God how I wanted to hug him for so many years and uh, and you know when uh, when we're alcoholics we can't be close for long you know and, uh, so he got out of bed and he's so frail and, and I put my arms around him I just hugged him for a second or two because he you know pushed away after a couple seconds but you know, one of the gifts of this program was I got to go back and take a degree in philosophy and theology from Georgetown. And one of the things I learned in theology is there are two kinds of time. There's chronos, which is chronological time, which is now I'm out of. And then there's there's something called kairos, which is God's time. And God's time is always now. 
And that's why, like Ken said, we have to meet God in the now. And I only hugged my brother for a few seconds in chronological time, but I hugged him forever in God's time. And I realized that it's never too late. It's never too late because God's always present in the now. And now is God's time. And um, a few months, six months later, my brother died clean and loved and surrounded by the people who cared about him. And he died on my 20th day birthday. And uh, my, the guys I sponsor were having an uh, anniversary for me the next day. And my brother Larry, who now is sober, had the family call me and say, please stay one day and then come up because uh, we want us, you to celebrate 20 years of continued sobriety. And the last thing my brother Terry said to me when I left was, you know, I don't think I have to drink anymore. And my brother Terry was able to do what I want to do one day, and that is to die sober, happy, surrounded by people who love me. I uh, didn't know it was going to go this way when I got up here this morning. I had a lot of jokes to tell. Um, but it goes the way God would have it go. And uh, this weekend has been a profound experience for me. And uh, and I will keep you in my hearts, those of you who I know, and uh, those of you I just met. May God bless you and keep you in that special place in his heart. And thank you very much. Thank you.